Good morning. Before we begin today's passage, um, I want to share with you something interesting I read on one of the driving websites. And on there it said, For some people, driving incites a sort of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde mentality. You might feel perfectly fine when you get in the car, but as soon as someone cuts you off in traffic, you become a whole different person. And likely not the person you're proud of. In extreme cases, you might experience road rage. Road rage is, a very, is very dangerous to yourself and those around you. It can result in severe legal consequences, physical harm, or even death. Road rage is defined as an aggressive or violent behavior stemming from a driver's uncontrolled rage at the actions of another motorist. Now, the following statistics compiled from the NHTSA and AutoVantage Auto Club show that aggressive driving and road rage are causing serious problems on our roads. There, those statistics say 66% of traffic fatalities are caused by aggressive driving. 37% of aggressive driving incidents involve a firearm. Males under the age of 19 are most likely to exhibit road rage. Half of all drivers who are on the receiving end of an aggressive behavior, such as horn honking, a rude gesture, or tailgating, admit to responding with aggressive behavior themselves. Over a seven-year period, 218 murders and 12,610 injuries were attributed to road rage. One scary statistic worth noting is 2% of drivers admit to trying to run an aggressive aggressor off the road. Now, although today's story isn't about road rage, it's a story about a similar kind of rage that went from 0 to 100 real quick. Now, this morning's passage is a conclusion of the story that we began last week. In Judges 15, we're going to see four separate events that took place in four different locations. In Samson's father-in-law's house, out on a field, in Judah, and at Lehi. As we look deeper into the events that we're about to read, you're going to see how quickly things can spiral out of control when the fiery fury, when the fire of fury is kindled. And how, can, and how the only way it can be quenched is with the water that God alone provides. So let's open up with a word of prayer and ask the Lord to speak with us this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for blessing us. Thank you for um, loving us the way you do. Lord, we don't deserve it, but you give it to us anyways. So now we ask that you speak to us through your holy word and that we may learn more from you, Lord. Learn those things that we don't know about yet, things that we often ignore, Lord, and uh, just fill us with your love and your wisdom. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be in Judges chapter 15. Judges chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Later on during the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat as a gift and visited his wife. I want to go to my wife in a room, he said, but her father would not let him enter. I was sure you hated her, her father said, so I gave her to one of the men who accompanied you. Isn't her younger sister more beautiful than she is? Why not take her instead? Samson said to them, this time I will be blameless when I harm the Philistines. So he went out and caught 300 foxes. He took torches, turned the foxes tail to tail, and put torches between each pair of tail. Then he ignited the torches and released the foxes into the standing grain of the Philistines. 
He burned the piles of grain and the standing grain as well, as the vineyard, as the vineyards and olive groves, as the vineyards and the olive groves. Then the Philistines asked, "Who did this?" They were told it was Samson, the Timonite's son-in-law, because he took Samson's wife and gave her to his companion. So the Philistines went and went to her and her father and burned them to death. Then Samson took them, because you did this, I swear that I won't rest until you have been until I have taken vengeance on you. He tore them limb from limb and then went down and stayed in the cave at the rock of Edom. So after taking some time off to blow off some steam from the events that took place in the second half of chapter 14, it appears that Samson is having second thoughts about the Philistine woman and returns to dinner in, with dinner in hand to Timna to try to finish the betrothal process that he failed to complete. However, unbeknownst to him, there's a big problem. When Samson arrives, her father would not let him enter her room explained that he has given her to one of the companions from his wedding feast, mentioned in chapter 14, verse 11. Realizing the serious problem facing the both of them, the woman's father suggests that Samson take instead her younger, more beautiful sister. Unfortunately, this isn't what Samson had in mind and why he was dragging that poor goat around. Once again, in frustration and anger because of the loss of his would-be wife, Samson threatens the Philistine nation as a whole and declares that the harm he will do to them will not be his fault. So he grabs 300 foxes, and a lot of um, commentators and translations will say that it was, actually, it was actual jackals. He ties their tails together in pairs and lights a torch between their tails. This causes the foxes to run wild all over the place, burning up the town's piles of grain, their vineyards, and their olive groves, thus destroying the town's vital food supply and its main source of trade and economy. This act of vengeance brings a conflict that quickly spins out of control. Enraged, the Philistines return Samson's vengeance with vengeance by burning to death Samson's bride and her father, fulfilling the initial threat that the 30 men issued to her in chapter 14, verse 15. The irony is that Samson's bride tried to avoid this fate by prying the answer to Samson, of Samson's riddle, but at, by the end, her actions, this action, sealed her destiny. This heinous act only enrages Samson even more, and he attacks and slaughters them by tearing, tearing them apart like he did the lion in chapter 14, verse 6. All of this, as vindictive as, as it clearly was, can be seen uh, can be seen in the larger narrative as part of God's plan to punish the Philistines through Samson's judgeship. Afterwards, he threatens he retreats to the safety in a cave at the Rock of Edom. Now, the location of Edom is, is uncertain. Regardless, the name may carry more meaning symbolically than geographically. You see, in Hebrew, the word Edom means a lair of wild beasts, which signifies how he's now seeking refuge from his enemies, like an animal hides from its predator. Just as he did in the previous cha chapter, the author continues to paint a really awful picture of Samson's personality. 
Even though we see hints of regret, loyalty, honor, creativity, creativeness, and energy, what stands out most is his ruthlessness, his vindictiveness, and his self-centeredness. God continues to work out his plan and purpose through a crude and imperfect person. So, the question is, what are you to do if you are wronged, mistreated, or taken advantage of? Well, first I want to mention what the Bible does, what the Bible tells us not to do. There it says, don't look for an opportunity to get revenge. Max Lucado said this, when we are mistreated, our animalistic response is to go on the hunt. Getting even is only natural, which incidentally is precisely the problem. Revenge is natural, not spiritual. Getting even is a rule of the jungle. Giving grace is the rule of the kingdom. You may be thinking, easy for you to say, Max. You have no idea how hard my life has been. You are right. I don't. But I have a very clear idea how miserable your future will be unless you deal with your anger. X-ray the soul of, vengeful, of, of the vengeful and behold the tumor of bitterness, menacing, malignant. Yesterday you can't, yesterday you can't alter, but your at reaction to yesterday you can. After all, don't we have enough things to do without trying to do God's work too? Forgiveness is not saying to the one who hurt you, forgiveness is not saying the one who hurt you was right. Forgiveness is stating that God will do what is right. Now he also, Max Lucado also said this, Revenge is the raging fire that consumes the arsonist. So now let me tell you what the Bible tells us. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, it says, Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down in your anger, and don't give the devil an opportunity. We're also told in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 29, don't say, I'll do to him what he did to me. I will repay the man for what he has done. And then it also says in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15, See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Now keep in mind there are always consequences to your actions, especially the negative ones. When you take vengeance into your own hands, not only will it affect you and the other person, but it may also affect others around you as well. They have nothing to do with it. When Samson released those foxes in Timnah, he had no idea his actions would cause the death of the woman he was going to marry and her father. As Christians, regardless of how bad we've been treated, we mustn't forget that vengeance is the opposite of what we've been called to do. In the first part of Romans uh, chapter 13, verse 10, it says, Love does, does no wrong to a neighbor. Martin Luther King Jr. put it like this. Man must ev evolve for all human conflict. Let me repeat that. Man must evolve for all human conflict, a method which rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation. The foundation of such a me method is love. Now here's what the Bible says that we as Christians ought to do says, be controlled by the Spirit rather than the flesh. If you've truly accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says that, that God's Spirit lives in you. Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 9. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh, 
But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Now, the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it's unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. You see, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And if we want him to reign supreme in our hearts, we must surrender it completely to him. Now, once you understand that principle, it will become easier to follow the biblical mandate that says, leave vengeance to God. Let me remind you what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. It says, friend, do not avenge yourself. Instead, leave room for God's wrath, because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. And we've been given no better example on how to do this than Christ himself. First Peter chapter 2, verse 23, and there he tells us, When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but, it, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. But it doesn't just end there, because the Bible tells us that we have to take it a step further by treating our enemies with love and compassion. You mean I have to be nice to those who, have, who want nothing to do than to ruin my life? Well, according to the words of Jesus in chapter 5, verses 43 to 48, yes, we do. Now, what does that look like? Well, it looks like this would look like, let's say someone, you and someone was working for a promotion. And that person you were going up against was doing everything they can to make sure that you didn't get that promotion. Having a heart of love. Being a Christian means if they get that promotion, is congratulating them. Telling them that they hope they have, uh, that they do a great job. It's praying for that, for that person in that new position. Also, it's, let's say, someone that you absolutely can't stand, can't hate, and they've been doing things to, to really destroy and ruin your life. Let's say, for example, their house burns down and they have nowhere else to go. They have nowhere else to say to stay. Loving this, loving your enemies means opening up your home to them, loving them and not treating them horribly. While they're in your home. It's giving them the food and the shelter that they need. This is what love looks like. Now, before we move on to the last portion of our passage, let me say this. Our aim in life is not to live life dictated by our emotions like Samson was here. Rather, it's to live life as God intended you to live it, in Him and through Him. Okay, let's read the rest of our passage here in chapter 15. Chapter 15, beginning in verse 9. The Philistines went up, camped in Judah, and raided Lehi. So the men of Judah said, why have you attacked us? They replied, We have come to tie Samson up and pay him back for what he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went to the cave at the rock of Edom, and they asked Samson, Don't you realize what the Philistines, that the Philistines rule us? What have you done to us? 
I have come to them that they, what I have done to them, what they have done to me, he answered. They said to him, we have come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Then Samson told them, swear to me that you yourselves won't kill me. No, they said, we won't kill you, but we will, we will tie you up securely and hand you over to them. So they tied him up with two new ropes and led him away from the rock. Then he came to Lehi, Lehi. Then when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came out to meet him, shouting. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on him, and the ropes that were on his arms and wrists became like burnt flax and fell off. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand, took it, and killed a thousand. Reached out in his hand, took it, and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, "With the jawbone of a donkey, I have piled them in heaps." With the jawbone, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have killed a thousand men. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone and named the place Ramath Lehi. He became very thirsty and called out to the Lord, "You have accomplished this great victory through your servant. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised?" So God split a hollow place in the ground at Lehi, and water came out of it. After Samson, after Samson drank. His strength returned, and he revived. This is why he named it in Enhakori, which is still in Lehi today. And he judged Israel twenty years in the days of the Philistines. This conflict between Samson and the Philistines ceases to become a small local problem, and has now become become a full blown national crisis between two nations, which again was something. God had intended to do when all these events began. In their manhunt for Samson, the Philistines enter and set up Camp Lehi, which means jawbone, and also Lehi was situated in the territory of Judah. The Judahites were understandably alarmed and interpreted interpreted the Philistine action as a declaration of war. Now, just to remind you, in the beginning of chapter thirteen, we were told that during the time of Israel, it was under the control of the Philistines. So, for Judah, this was a cause of concern because they knew that if they went to war against them, they were going up against a much more stronger adversary. Instead of calling Samson, reaching out to Samson to lead them in battle, however. As previous deliverers had done, they tried to negotiate a peace. The Judahite leaders discovered that their focus of their aggression was just limited to Samson, and all they wanted to all they wanted was to take him as their prisoner. And little do they realize that the Philistine aggression is instigated by God to break the status quo between between Israel and the enemy. This goes to show that the Judahites would rather deliver their countrymen into the hands of the enemy and live under that enemy's domination than fulfill the mandate Yahweh had given them to occupy the land and drive out the enemy. Although it seems strange and confusing, it shouldn't surprise us when someone stands up to evil. People can often become angry at the one who stood up to evil when they are when they should be angry at the evil itself. Verses eleven through twelve then tell us the negotiation that took place between Judah and Samson. Ultimately, they managed to convince Samson of the predicament he put them in, 
and tell him that he will, they will be restraining him and handing him over to the Philistines. Now doing this, it does, it does show great faith in Samson's part. You see, he was willing to put himself in a difficult position and trust God to take care of him. Samson willingly submits and agrees to be bound as requested under one condition, that they not kill him after he's bound. After agreeing, they tied him up with new rope and led him away to the enemy. When Samson saw the Philistines and heard them shouting, the Spirit of God empowered him yet again, and after tearing the rope into pieces, the battle was on. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, Samson single-handedly defeats a thousand men using only the jawbone of a donkey he found. As seen at prior po points in the account of Samson, he issues out, after he's done defeating him, he issues out, or he, he states a poem. He writes a poem. And why? Why did he, what was the point of this poem? Well, you see, poetry, he used this poem to make the event a lot more memorable. In the end, he throws away the jawbone from which, uh, at that place, and names it Ramath Lehi, which is how, again, that city gained its name. Now, one preacher came up with a five-point sermon on the jawbone of an ass, liking it to the weapon of the gospel. You see, it was a novel weapon. It was a most convenient weapon. It was a simple weapon. It was a ridiculous weapon. It was a successful weapon. Now, because of all the physical exertion from killing 1,000 Philistine men, Samson is left tired, dehydrated, and dying from thirst. He feels as though his life is on the brink, and he, yes, he feels like he's about to die. So he cries out to the Lord for help, and God opens up a spring of water to provide, opens up a spring to provide water for Samson. And there he named that place in Hakori. The author's point in including this story is to show that God not only empowered Samson by his spirit, but also physically sustained him with water, so that Samson would accomplish God's purposes as judge. The author then concludes by telling us the length of time Samson judged during the days of the Philistines. I want to share with you some insights from this particular passage that I hope will encourage and uplift you. When Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, you are no longer bound by the rope of sin and death, and God's Spirit enables you to fight every spiritual enemy. The moment Jesus died on the cross, every past, present, and future sin of yours died with him as well. When he rose from the dead three days later, death was defeated and everlasting life was given to all those who believe in him. And for those of you, for those who have believed in him, the Bible tells us that, that the same spirit that rose him from the dead is in you as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, Three, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, it says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Therefore, if Christ has set you free, you will be free indeed. So avoid anything that would, 
Well, we'll put you back into the yoke of slavery. Let, let us, church, let us go out into the world, not in fear, but with the power and might of the Holy Spirit. Another insight from this passage that ought to encourage you is this. God uses the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary. Samson didn't use a special sword or an axe or a hammer to kill all those Philistines. No, nothing but with, not, with nothing but determination and divine empowerment, Samson used the jawbone of a donkey to defeat his enemies. You know who else used a simple weapon to defeat his enemy? With nothing but a few rocks and a slingshot, David killed Goliath on the battlefield. We, as believers, have also been given a weapon that has the power to slay every giant and every enemy that comes against us. This weapon we have is called the Word of God. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, we're told, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the, thought, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And with this weapon in hand, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 5, tell us who and what we are waging war against. For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every captive to obey we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So like Samson Fight every spiritual enemy with determination and with the strength of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, when you find yourself exhausted, weak, and your life seems to be hanging by a thread, God will replenish you with his living water. The author tells us in verse uh, 19 in our passage, After Samson drank, his strength returned and he revived. In the Hebrew, the words revived and strength implies that this was both a physical healing and a spiritual replenishment. And there's nothing in this world that's more fulfilling, satisfying, and revitalizing than the living water that comes from the Lord. Now, in case you're unsure what I'm talking about, let me once again read to you the words spoken by Jesus in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Let me add that many Christians often associate the term being filled with the Spirit with just the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Gifts such as speaking in tongues and healing through laying of the hands. However, there's an aspect to the Holy Spirit that's often ignored and neglected. And what is this? It's the satisfying refreshment that He provides when we're at our lowest and weakest. You see, the gifts of the Spirit are meant for others, but the refreshment that comes from the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit is meant for us. 
I want to read one more passage that beautifully describes what the Holy Spirit does for us. It says in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 20, 29 and 31 to 31, He gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. If you've never been refreshed by this living water, and that's what you desire, all you have to do is come to the cross of Jesus, confess your sins, lay those sins upon him, and receive God's forgiveness. In other words, in order to receive this revitalization, this refreshment from the Holy Spirit. You must know Him. You must accept Him. And the only way you can do that is by being born again. And in a minute, I will lead you in a prayer to do that. Before I do, I just want to, again, review what's going on here just in our passage. Before I close, I want to just review what, what we covered here in our passage. At the beginning of his career, Samson served in a blaze of glory. But the light began to flicker as he yielded to his passions. As we'll see in the next week or two, the events we'll see in this chapter aren't the end of Samson's problems. Yet, in spite of his flaws, God continues to use him to fulfill his will and purpose. As I finish this morning, I want you to be honest with yourself by looking at how you've been living are you living by the Spirit of God, or are you living to satisfy the flesh? Before I end in prayer, I want to read something to you that will help you answer this question. And it's found in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you, do not, so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before, that, you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If you want to live by the Spirit and if you've never asked Jesus into your heart, pray this simple prayer with all sincerity. Lord Jesus, I come before you and confess that I'm a sinner. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross and that Almighty God raised you from the dead. 
I now ask you that you forgive me of my sins and be my Lord and Savior. In the name of Christ Jesus, I pray. Amen. If you prayed that, please don't hesitate to let me know. You can contact me through our website, through our telephone. But um, when you do, I, I want to reach. I want you to reach out because I just want to tell you more about how you can, can continue to grow as a believer. Let's now end this morning service with a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this message, for the word you've given us. I pray that all those who prayed that uh, prayer to receive you will come to know you in a more personal and intimate way, Lord. May they reach out to me or to others who will disciple them, that will encourage them, that will show them your word, your love, that will teach them what they need to know, Lord. Thank you for this example of Samson. Lord, for teaching us to be careful about our emotions, our anger, and the dangers of taking out, being vengeful, Lord. Bless this time, Lord, this next time of fellowship. I pray for everyone here that their week may go well. You protect them, you watch over them and their, and their families, Lord. May we continue to uplift one another and encourage one another in this next time. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.